0: Have you ever had a noise in your car and you just think, well, if I ignore it, it'll go away. You know, it's just, it'll go away. Or have you ever had some physical symptom in your body and you think, yeah, yeah if I ignore it, it'll go away? Or those of you that are married, Perhaps you've been getting hints from your spouse that something's not quite right in your relationship, and you kind of reason, well, if I just kind of ignore it, it'll, it'll go away. Um, this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9. We're going to look at this theme and the hope and promise of revival where there is a noise that's going on in the car called Israel. (laughs) There's a problem in the relationship that Israel has with her God. There is a disease that is crawling around working its evil in the body politic of, of Israel. You remember that Israel had been carried off into captivity. They were allowed to return by Cyrus, the king of Persia, and there was a group of about 50,000 who had returned in a, right around 539 BC. About 70 years later, Ezra comes with another group of about 5,000 people. So uh, Group of fifty thousand, followed by a group of five thousand, and the temple is rebuilt and the sacrifices are reestablished. A revival of sorts is is happening. About five months, actually, to be precise, four months and twenty days, if you're counting, uh, of Ezra's teaching ministry, there is an awareness of this noise in the car, of this problem in the relationship, of this serious disease that's going on. That's what we'll discover in chapter 9 here. And what it reminds us is that all revival exposes sin. Uh, We should pray for revival, but be aware that when we do that, and God answers... There's going to be an exposure of sin, and that exposure will make us feel very uncomfortable. It will feel messy, and we will have a tendency to want to ignore the noise, ignore the problem, ignore the symptom. We are embarking upon this chapter, which is, contains one of the great prayers of confession in all of Scripture. Scripture. You know, Nehemiah chapter 1, Daniel chapter 9, Ezra 9, 6 to 15 is one of the great prayers of confession in all of Scripture. It, it reveals to us, frankly, how shallow our prayers are. You know, we, we kind of, Lord, bless me, forgive me of my sin, amen. You know, <laughs> Ezra goes a little deeper than that. Um, let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, "...the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons... So that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice." And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens." From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt for, and for our iniquities. We, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant. And to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem." And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, Do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all this, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt For none can stand before you because of this. Please have a seat. In verses 1 to 5, we see the faithlessness of Israel is revealed. The faithlessness of Israel is revealed. Now, I need to give you a little note here about verse 2 where it says. In the ESV, they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. If you look at the Hebrew words for Mary, you will see that the main Hebrew word for Mary is not found in Ezra. In fact, the words that are used here, uh, translated more literally, lift, carry, take, or live with, suggest that something less than intermarriage has taken place, and rather it's more like They've taken these women to live with them. So be aware that there is some broader context here regarding their sin that presents some complications. The key point is that the people of Israel have not separated themselves from the peoples around them. You know, when we read about this, where it says that uh, in verse 2, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands... This is not about the mixing of races. Uh, There are some people who have tried to build that case in centuries before, and that is not true. What is going on is the unequal joining of marrying an idol worshiper or living, more precisely here, living with an idol worshiper and how that diminishes Israel to glorify her God. That they are embracing not just the people of the land in intimate relationships, but they are by that going to be diluting their passionate worship of Almighty God and embrace the same problem that they have always had. Ezra has been in the land for about four to five months and... Only now he discovers that this is a problem in Israel. He's realizing what's happening. The officials have approached him and told him this that this is what's going on. That the peoples all around, and by the way, north and central and east and south are represented in those peoples. And that they have these confused relationships, more like living together than any kind of marriage, particularly not a covenant of marriage made between families or two parties. And the offspring is mixed up and confused, not racially, but religiously. And end of verse 2, the worst offenders in this faithfulness, faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men, has been foremost… Now, this is a problem in Israel's history, right? Remember Abraham insisting that his servant go not from the people around to get a wife for Isaac? Isaac's insistence and in the same for Jacob and how Esau disappointed Jacob, or, uh, Esau disappointed Isaac in that regard. Uh, Judah's sin in Genesis 37 was taking up with a person that he thought was a Canaanite prostitute. Samson's sin in loving all of the Philistine women, and then the sins of Solomon and how he gathered up wives that were from the peoples all around that ended up leading to a division of the kingdom and actually to the demise of the kingdom ultimately, so that they were carried off into captivity because Israel could not figure out that there was only one God. That was the number one thing that God wanted to impress upon Israel. There's one God and you serve Him only. And this kind of relating to the peoples around was was ruining that. And here they went off to captivity for 70 years and they had finally figured out there's only one God. But now... It's being revealed by their continuing sins of intimate relationships with people who do not believe that. There's a very real possibility they're going to go back to polytheism. It'll go back to worship the Lord and the gods around them. And they'll be back in a worse spot than they'd started. This is apparently news to Ezra. Who are the people who've done this? It it seems that they're the people who'd been in the land for some time. Maybe part of the first 50,000 returnees. And now he's seeing that these leaders who have been part of that first group of returnees are now engaged in these kinds of illicit relationships. Verse 3, he tears his clothes. He pulls his hair from his head and from his beard. And he sat appalled he said nothing. Verse 4, those who had attended Ezra's teaching of God's word gather around Ezra because of this faithlessness of the returned exiles. And Ezra still says nothing until the evening sacrifice. And in verse 5, Ezra rises from his fasting with torn garments, and he falls on his knees, spreading out his hands, it says, to the Lord my God. Hmm. The faithlessness of Israel is revealed. Now, let's be careful. For many of us sitting here listening to this message, you're thinking, oh good, this isn't about me. I don't intermarry with Parasites or Jebusites. It's all good. I'm... Come on, preach it. That's good. Did you know this text is not about Israel's intermarriage issues or illicit relationship issues? If you think it is, you should think again what this is about is sin. It's about compromise. It's about the holiness of God. It's about our reaction to the sinful compromise of God's Word. And all too frequently, when we encounter sin, either in ourselves or others in God's family, our reaction is, ah, it's not that big a deal. We tend to excuse ourselves and others. We reserve our judgment and criticism for people who are far from us. But let it be someone who is related to us or someone close to us. And all of a sudden, well, you know, you have to understand all the stresses that they are under and so on and so forth, right? Second thing that we need to recognize, Ezra's in the middle of a revival. And revival exposes sin, as you pray for revival in our own world, in your own heart, in your own church, are you ready for your sin to be exposed? Well, verses 6 to 15 is the faithlessness of Israel confessed. Here we have this beautiful prayer. Let's look at it. There's five steps that Ezra takes in the confession of this sin of Entering into illicit relationships with the peoples of the land. He begins, verse 6, Oh my God. He starts with God in confession. This is where we ought always to start. Start with God and His character. And then he has a confession of sins. He says, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Even though... Those sins are not Ezra's personal sins. He says, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Let me ask you, as you think about the sins of others, let's say within the family of God more broadly, people that call themselves Christians, are you ashamed of them? Do those sins bring shame to your heart, or do you look in judgment on them? Oh, Lord, I'm glad I'm not that. I'm glad I don't have that problem. Or do they bring a sense of ashamedness? As you think about the sins of our nation, do you look at it with a sense of kind of like you got your arm around God looking down and going, yeah, look at them, aren't they bad? You and me, God, we we can... Or, like Ezra, do we say, I'm ashamed, I blush, as I think about our iniquities, our sins. Our iniquities, he says, are higher than our heads. The head is a place of status, and what, what Ezra is saying here in verse 6 is that our iniquities are what has greater status than our esteem in our own eyes. You know, everybody likes to think well of himself. Everybody likes to think that, you know, the problems are out there, not in here, and Ezra is saying, my sin, our sins, our national sin here is greater than the esteem we have for ourselves, our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. We have a debt far, far too great to atone. This is an immediate recognition of wrong without excuses. This is not an easy thing to do because it dates back to the very first sin. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? God chases them down. He says, Adam, what, what, what's going on? What happened? Adam says, first, The woman you gave me, she gave it to this fruit to me and I ate. And he goes to Eve and Eve goes, no, 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 the serpent, the serpent enticed me. You know, we we always want to make excuses. So Ezra's prayer is remarkable for its immediate recognition of wrong without excuses. Verse 7 gives the second step of confession. Ezra reviews with God the history of Israel with their God. From the days of the fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. You know, this has been a problem. This issue of how we do relationships in our everyday lives, that's been a problem ever since we started as a country. He says, for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands. In other words, that's the very reason why we got carried off into captivity in the first place, because we were doing this nonsense. We've been given in judgment from other nations. We've gotten the sword, which is death. We've gotten captivity. We've had our stuff plundered. And we are in utter shame. And this shame continues right up to the present time because we don't have a real nation We're still under the Persian Empire. They're just being nice to us because you are being kind to us through them. So, immediate recognition of wrong without excuses. Reviewing with God our history with Him. Verses 8 and 9. Acknowledging God's present grace. Acknowledging God's present grace. But now, for a brief moment. See, Ezra recognizes grace and he doesn't know how long it's going to last. For a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. This request for favor has been answered. We've received our prayers answered. We asked that we might return to our land and you have granted that request. And still we're rebelling. We still are going back to the same things that we'd been doing. You'd given us favor to come back, to leave a remnant, to give us a secure hold. That phrase translated secure hold is a a nail within his holy place. We've actually made a beachhead here. We've actually made some progress to brighten our eyes, it says. A little reviving of the thirsty is what that means. And then, end of verse 8, and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. See, a revival had begun, but here they were still slaves. And there's this little bit of reviving, and no sooner is that started than Ezra discovers this horrific sin that's going on. Verse 9, we're slaves, but our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, He's extended His. Steadfast love, that means His covenant loyalty. He's extended His covenant loyalty to us before the kings of Persia. And by the way, we've reviewed this, but this this now by this time has been five different Persian kings who have granted this grace to allow Israel to return. And God's steadfast love is being executed through these kings of Persia, one after the other, to grant us some reviving, some reviving to set up the temple, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Immediate recognition of wrong without excuses, reviewing with God our history of Him, acknowledging God's present grace. Now in verses 10 to 12, Ezra accepts God's judgment based on his promises in his word. So he says, now, oh our God, what should we say after this? Burkle paraphrase: God, we got nothing. We got nothing to offer you here. We're in a mess. What should we say? We have forsaken your commandments. And now he quotes the Bible, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets saying it 's probably a combination of deuteronomy seven one to four and Malachi two ten to seventeen. But what he says here is the land that you're entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Um. You know, lots of people that want to be critics of the Scripture and of the God of the Bible say, why in the world would God be so mean as to tell Israel to wipe these people out of the land when he enters the land? That's just so mean. I don't want to believe in a God like that. And here he says, never seek these people's peace or prosperity of the Canaanite inhabitants. Is that because God's mean? No. It is not because God is mean. It is because when evil prospers, guess what happens? You get more evil. If you create an atmosphere where evil is able to prosper, more evil things are going to happen. And... (sighs) uh, it's just difficult for me because I could tell you some of the practices of these Canaanites and then you would be appalled. You'd all flee into the parking lot going, ah, you know. In terms of their sexual practices, their their offering of children as sacrifices, some of the ways in which they engaged in horrific, horrible things. And... When God promised Abraham that he was gonna give his descendants this land in Genesis chapter 15, he said, and it's gonna be 400 years before that happens. And then God gave Abraham the reason why it was gonna be 400 years. He said, because the sin of the peoples that live there have not yet reached their full measure. God is so merciful so kind, he gave these people 400 years to repent. And instead, they got more and more and more wicked and evil, and they are still there in this land because Joshua didn't root them out, and people intermarried with them, and when they did, they embraced their worship practices. You see, it's not about God being mean, It's not about God hating some races and loving others because after all, let's remember, who was included in the covenant community? Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. Why was she included? Because she forsook those gods and those evil practices and she joined with Israel in following one God. Why was it that Boaz and Ruth Why was Ruth the Moabitess allowed into the covenant community? Because she forsook the gods of the Moabites. Do you remember what she said to Naomi? You know, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. See, God is infinitely patient. But what happens here? is that he, God is saying, look, this is, this is not a problem that's just popped up yesterday. This is a problem of thousands of years in the operation. And don't seek the peace or prosperity of these Canaanite inhabitants. And it's not because God's mean. It's because when evil prospers, you get more evil. More evil comes. Accept God's judgments based on His promises in His Word. Verses 13 to 15, tell God you are guilty and that you cannot stand before Him. Verse 13, Ezra says, we've been punished less than our sins deserve, and you've given us a remnant. He knows that that's grace. They should have been wiped out again. Verse 14, shall we break your commandments again? And the word intermarry is there, but I think have illicit relations with people who practice these abominations? Should we trample on your good grace and continue in our rebellion? Why, if that were true, you would, would you not be so angry with us that you'd consume us so that there would be no remnant or any to escape? And then in verse 15, just as he began with God, he ends with God in his character, in his prayer, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. He calls on the justice of God, for we are left a remnant that is escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, and none can stand before you because of this. Immediate recognition of wrong without excuses. Reviewing with God our history with him. Acknowledging God's present grace. Accept his judgments based on his promises in his word. And tell God that you are guilty and that you cannot stand before him. Do you see how Ezra's confession of sin is a little bit more complicated than many of ours can be? Where we just kind of flippantly say, oh yeah, God, forgive me. If I've done anything wrong, forgive me. Ezra's entering into a place of real revival. You know, we have some problems these days in that we as a body of Christ have grown accustomed to sin. This was the same problem of Ezra's day. Instead of responding with violence against sin to chase sin out of our lives, we grow accustomed to it. We become friends with it. That's what happened in Israel. Their consciences had become seared and hardened to the sinfulness of sin. They honestly came to a place. What's what's the big deal about this? What's so bad about it? Ongoing open sin wasn't that big a deal. It wasn't a big deal to them. And they didn't think it was a big deal to God. They thought they could worship God and disobey Him at the same time. I, I believe that if you asked an Israelite from Ezra's day how's your walk with God? How's your worship with God? They would have responded to you, oh man, we're in revival. It's great. It's never been better. We're having a great time in worship at the temple that's been rebuilt. Like all who have become accustomed to sin in their hearts, they evaluated their walk with God on the basis of emotion instead of obedience. And they experienced a lot of positive emotions toward God as they sang songs and they prayed and they entered the temple and worshipped with other people. But those emotions didn't translate into whole life transformation, submission to his lordship. Worship activities without whole life submission offends God That's why Ezra just stopped and sat there and tore his clothes and pulled out his beard. It would be better if we didn't go through the motions at all than some external activities of worship without a heart of submission to God's authority. I think that these guys in Ezra's day were actually happy they were happy in their sin. If you had taken a poll, they would have said, "Yeah." In terms of horizontal happiness, you know, uh, hey, these women, this 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 Jebusite woman I'm with, she's charming and beautiful. The wife was probably very sweet to them and enjoyable to live with. If you were going to base it on a happiness poll, they would have probably been off the charts, as saying it's all great. How do you feel? Awesome. Growing accustomed to sin. In fact, we've, we've turned grace upside down, haven't we? Today, when sin is exposed, there is a view of grace within God's church that is not a call to repent and forsake sin and run to Christ. Instead, it is a call for everybody to get on board with accepting the person as they are in their sin and saying, that's okay, good that you're with us. And the verse we trot out for that is, well, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. That is not grace, my friends. At least not as biblically defined. There's an ignoring of the holiness of God in Ezra's day. They stopped thinking of God as holy and righteous. They began to think of God as more like themselves. They didn't see God as transcendent and pure. And so they weren't listening to what God had said about himself. They were listening to what their own hearts said. And it created an idol. An idol about God that was kind of soft and fluffy and happy. They forgot that the true God hates sin with an infinite hatred and that he will put an end to it. They forsook the call to be God's people. They stopped thinking of themselves as a holy people. They started thinking of themselves rather as, hey, at least I'm better than the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Egyptians around me. They compared their life with those people and they go, hey, I'm better than them. I guess I'm okay with God. They began to fit into their culture. They wanted to be different, but just a little bit different. Now, to, the, to those of us who live today on this side of the cross of Christ, we know that all those sacrifices that were offered at the temple in Jerusalem We're pointing forward to Jesus' great sacrifice at the cross, right? He's the one to whom every sacrifice points. They point us to Jesus who on the cross took the punishment that our sins deserve. He suffered. He bled. He died. And in doing so, he received the wrath of God for our sins. God's righteous response against sin was laid on our Savior, Jesus Christ. He did that so that He could bring about a forgiveness, a removal of our sins. Our sins were taken from us and placed on Him, and He could offer His righteousness, produced through His perfect sinless life, to be our righteousness, So that we would have the clothes of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ when we stand before this holy God. That's the gospel, that we who could not pay for our sin are broken and ruined and helpless before our sin, now have one who is the sacrifice bearing the wrath and the punishment for our sin, and we believe in Him and what He did for us at the cross, and we are forgiven. And we are clothed in a righteousness, not our own. And he rose from the dead to demonstrate that it's all a fact. It's not just some fakery here. Now the response to the discovery of our sin should be humble, contrite. But when we rise from our confession maybe even using those five steps of confession that Ezra used here, the response should not be, when we. the first response should not be, now I'm going to do better. Now I'm not going to sin like I used to. I'm going to make some commitments. That's not the first response we should make. Now, the first response is when we have been broken by our sin to come to a place where we say, you know what? I cannot reform myself. The sin that has captivated me will roll like a steamroller right over me. I'm helpless in the face of the power enslavement that sin brings on our lives. But there is one who has walked this world for me who was tempted in every way, just like I am, but was without sin. He's the one who died in my place, and he says, the grace that I have secured through my sinless life and through my perfect death, I'm offering to everyone who comes, and Jesus says, come to me. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die, to sin and live to righteousness, by his stripes we are healed. So, in these moments where we're about to partake at the Lord's table, I'm going to ask if we do a little inventory. That we'd pray the prayer of David in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. To say, God, I want revival so bad I want you to expose sin in my life and I want to take it to the cross. I want to take it to the cross. He bore it. He bore the wrath for me. Don't ignore the Holy Spirit in this moment. The Holy Spirit's the one that's telling you there's a noise in your car. The Holy Spirit's the one that's saying, you know, there's a, there's a problem in your marriage. The Holy Spirit's the one who's saying, you know, your body, there's something wrong. You know, those are just illustrative of the Holy Spirit pointing out sin in your life, right? Don't ignore, just like you wouldn't ignore the problem in your car, the problem in your marriage, or, you know, the problem in your body. Don't ignore the sin in your soul. Use these moments to ask God to reveal it to you. And then run to the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Lord In these moments, precious moments, we ask for your Holy Spirit to do his soul surgery in our hearts, to expose sin in our lives, and help us to confess it before you, to do the things that Ezra did, not just to merely roll over it by going, yeah, 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 God, forgive me, but that we would really come to a place where we... uh, acknowledge our wrong without excuses, that we review with you our history with you, that we acknowledge your grace, we accept your judgments, and we tell you that we're guilty and we can't stand before you, but there is one who stands for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we come to him. Oh God, do that work in us in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.